Hello, and welcome to the second season of the Pioneers Wanted podcast. This show is all about pioneers. The UK, like so many economies, has had a decade of stagnation. Our Victorian infrastructure is creaking, our next generation workforce uninspired. Our environment is on its knees. As we grapple with the economic consequences of Brexit and design a bounce back from the COVID-19 pandemic, we need to embrace a radically different model for leadership of our largest organisations. More of the same won't cut it. Here's the good news. Pioneer leadership is the antidote. My name is Philip Clark, and I'm more excited than ever about the power of pioneer leadership to transform our business culture, society and economy. Why? Because we all need to learn to play a long game, to disrupt the status quo and to chase a more purposeful future. In this podcast, I interview pioneers from all walks of life, exploring their outlook, enjoying their character, admiring and learning from their audacity. And in this episode, I was joined by George Beavis, founder of business bank challenger Tide. We explore the call to entrepreneurship, the life lessons you learn from retail, and how he could have saved us from both Boris Johnson and Mark Zuckerberg. Enjoy the episode. You might have noticed that a few weeks ago, Sony released the new PlayStation 5, and hundreds of thousands of people suddenly needed to find a home for their old gaming console. Surely there's an easier way than listing, packing, and shipping via eBay. Well, my guest today thought of that back in 2007, and he launched a startup to solve that problem for everyone. He then turned his attention to the challenges facing small and medium-sized businesses across our economy. He enjoyed the topic so much, that he ended up authoring a book about UK SME policy for the Labour Party. It turns out he had some thoughts for that problem too. And you know that digital banking revolution we hear talked about all the time? Well, it turned out the revolution only went so far. Regulators, entrepreneurs and venture capitalists spent much of the last decade chasing the same goal, a sexy digital bank for everyday consumers. What most of them missed was the bigger prize and the bigger problem. Business banking. This was a category long considered an afterthought for high street banks, something reflected in awful customer experiences, punitive pricing, and archaic processes. Well, my guest today was paying attention. Guess what? He had some thoughts on that challenge as well, how banking should operate for businesses in a modern economy. True to form, he designed a venture, raised a big pile of money, and launched a new bank dedicated to small businesses. With over 100,000 customers, it seems to be doing all right. I don't even have time to explain how he sort of invented Facebook. He'll have to tell you that himself. But for good measure, he did find time to set up a social incubator whose first venture, popped to the shop, linked up volunteers to deliver essential supplies to people in self-isolation throughout 2020. Proof, once and for all, that bankers are people too. So welcome to the show, George Beavis. Thanks, Phil. Really looking forward to talking to you today. So we've bumped into each other on quite a few occasions, I think, over the last 10 or even 15 years. Each time we've met, you've been on the cusp of launching uh, something new, something exciting. They haven't always worked, but they've always been disruptive and they've been increasingly ambitious. So we'll get into your various ventures and misadventures shortly. But 
I think I want to start by understanding a bit about your worldview as you grew up. As I understand it, you were growing up in the 90s, the world was changing fast. You applied and you got into Cambridge University. So what was your plan when you got there? My plan was not to become an entrepreneur, that's for sure. So I was, uh, well, I first started at university in 1997, and uh, I was always interested in politics uh, anyway, and I've spent my whole life being interested in politics. But obviously 1997 was also the year that Tony Blair was elected, and there was a time of extraordinary national optimism about how a country could be changed and improved. So my assumption going into being a student was um, that I would probably want to try and have a career in that direction. And I did a lot of student politics, and I, I ran an organization called the Cambridge Union, which is a, a slightly grandiose debating society uh, at that university, uh, which is often a training ground for people who do go into politics. But the other thing that happened while I was there was the dot-com revolution. So uh, I particularly remember in 1999 flying off on holiday to New York and seeing something that at that point hadn't quite hit in London yet. In fact, I don't think it ever hit to the same extent that every single taxi was covered in the livery of some.com and every single billboard was advertising some.com and realizing that there was a, uh, a complete transformation in how the world worked, uh, driven by entrepreneurship. And so uh, although I went to university, perhaps anticipating that I would end up working in politics, uh, I definitely left it really, as I say, just as a function of the times, uh, much more aware that entrepreneurialism could be uh, an exciting path as well. I think that was a really interesting time, actually, for all of us who had a, um, a kernel of wanting to make the world different or to, to build something. It, it kind of felt like the time at which entrepreneurship moved out of the slightly grubby, dubious wheeler-dealer perception into the idea that this is credible, big business, technology, it's the future, it's exciting. I was just coming out of university uh, about the same time. I'm a couple of years older than you. And I remember both the Tony Blair kind of experience. I was a terrible Tory at the time, and I, I was horrified. Turns out I'm the only person that loves him now. Um, but I, But I do remember that the excitement and the fact the world was being rewritten because of what was happening with the internet. So this is, I suspect, where Reach Nation turns up. Tell us a bit about that story. <laughs> so uh, I, I'm pleased you found the name Reach Nation. I think you and I are probably the only two people uh, on earth today who know what it is or was. But um, at the time that I was about to graduate at uni, um, I spent all my time climbing the political greasy ladder in this organization that I mentioned, the Cambridge Union. And uh, to get elected to run that, you have to get a lot of people to vote for you. And to get a lot of people to vote for you, you have to suck up to a lot of people. So I had spent two and a half years doing a lot of networking in one way or another. And I had probably about as big a network as anyone graduating from university would ever normally have. And I was aware that that had value and that when I graduated, I would lose it. At that time, there were no social networks of any significance. Uh, so the idea occurred to me that it would be quite handy if there were some form of online contact details directory that undergraduates and graduates and uh, postgraduates and everyone else uh, in their future lives could update themselves. And that as well as building that in order to uh, make it something that people wanted to log into regularly and, and, and use regularly, we could also 
for the first time ever, put a web interface on top of university email services. So at that time, Hotmail had only recently been launched, and uh, there was no easy web access for students on the holidays. So very often students on holidays just didn't check their email because they didn't know how to, and it was a bit complicated, and you had to use this command line tool called uh, Telnet. But uh, it, yeah, I thought we could make our contact details directory more sticky if we uh, um, added a communication feature to it as well. So in your introduction at the start of this, you alluded to uh, how I sort of, uh, how one could argue in a way that uh, that this contains some of the ideas behind Facebook, um, which is accurate. It was essentially a very early social networking site for people that uh, initially at Oxford and Cambridge rather than Harvard and Yale, but the, the philosophy was very similar. Unfortunately, we did make one substantial mistake and um, also we had one error of timing. So we the error of timing was the reason why we never became Facebook. So the difference between version one of what we built and version one of uh, Facebook, which is the most important uh, difference, uh, was that when we launched, which was in 2000, um, nobody had digital cameras, whereas Facebook launched in 2004. And so, of course, lots of people had digital cameras then. And so, as you remember, the point of Facebook in the early months and years was for students to log in and work out which other students they thought were hot. Uh, and that kept them logging in all the time. There was always a sort of, you know, allusion to other objectives, but that was always the, the fundamental uh, consideration behind logging in, as far as I could tell. Uh, and no doubt the students of my time would have absolutely found that to be a very useful use case, but nobody had digital cameras, so there wasn't a way to do that. Uh, so it wasn't as exciting as Facebook. But we did also launch at the same time as uh, a website you may remember called Friends Reunited. And Friends Reunited is essentially defunct, but it actually had essentially the same idea as us, didn't need digital photos either. So Friends Reunited was just a massive shared contact details directory on the internet. And although it's defunct now, it's worth noting that whereas I ended up giving away our site, Reach Nation, to a bunch of students two years later when I didn't really know what to do with it. Friends Reunited at its peak, I think, sold for something like £260 million, which I could have done with as an early 20-something. Uh, the difference between their strategy and ours was really only that, um, unlike us, and indeed unlike early Facebook, they had not made the decision to just launch at a couple of universities up front. But instead, as far as I can tell, pretty much on day one, they'd listed every school and every university in the country, every organization that you really could be an alumnus of or an alumna of were, were, was listed. And so that meant that they could get a huge amount of PR, which they did get uh, because the service was theoretically relevant to anyone. And they, they did grow um, very, very fast and became very valuable, although, as I say, it's, it's a defunct service now. But that was my first uh, entrepreneurial venture and uh, clearly was not a great success, but uh, did learn a few things. I will say, though, that I'm glad you have gone on to do something that's worked because it would be terrible if in your you know years at university you had the potential to turn into Boris Johnson and, and praise the Lord, you didn't do that. You had the potential to you know, be Mark Zuckerberg or, or whoever the people were who made all that dosh from Friends Reunited, and you didn't do that. To, to fail so much so early would have been terrible. But the good news is you, you, you kind of went beyond that. There's, there's a little 
part of me that's thinking though that you know this podcast is very popular with Russian bots, and I suspect you might get somebody approaching you for that database of um, the great and the good from Oxford and Cambridge back in the day. So you you moved on from Cambridge, you uh, stepped away from at least some of those political ambitions. You'd scratched some of that entrepreneurial urge. If I understand it right, you kind of took a fairly straight path for a few years. You went into strategy work in in banking, essentially, and you know, spent, what, four or five years in the city? Yeah, that's right. I didn't have any great appetite for that. Uh, so the re- real context for that, I mean, actually, my, the, the, the storyline was fractionally more exciting than you're alluding to. So and it's, it's rare to say that anything was is, is exciting in the context of accountancy, but that actually um, there was that. So I graduated, if I'm honest, a little bit overconfident about my prospects in the job market and uh, as a result hadn't bothered to submit job applications at the time before I graduated when everyone else had in the look around so I didn't have a job to go to and uh, was then a bit desperate I couldn't get jobs in consulting uh, strategy consulting which is what I wanted to do because um, I had done a ridiculously easy sociology type degree for three years that had no value and hadn't done very well in the exams so uh, I couldn't actually think analytically at that stage and uh, couldn't get a, a job in that domain and instead had to settle I thought for an offer to become an accountant. Now it's true that the overlap of the entrepreneur world and the accounting world is is, is not a big one and uh, my father who actually strangely was a relatively entrepreneurial accountant had uh, encouraged me to go down this path particularly because I didn't have any other one available to me and it lasted all the six weeks before I failed the same exceptionally boring early accounting exam twice um, as an employee of Deloitte and Touche as it was then and uh, they fired me quite rightly so uh, I was broke and I needed a job I was temping on not much more than minimum wage in the admin department of uh, Lord's Cricket Ground which is exceptionally unpleasant and in my um, desperation got lucky when a a friend who worked for the american retail bank and credit card company capital one suggested that i join them so i went to them for three years and subsequently did a um, a similar length of time at uh, at rbs Uh, but to be honest never really had any great enthusiasm for working in, in banking i wasn't hostile to it either but i didn't see it as you know calling or something i was desperately passionate to do it it just ended up that that happened because i needed something to pay the rent it was however when we first met because i was probably doing a consulting thing desperately trying to turn people like you into clients so um at least you were on the right side of that equation i know that there was obviously there was something kind of there was something you spotted you know a few years into this like 2006 2007 and this turned into speed cell which i think was your first really formative big big venture what was it that you saw or what was going on that that meant you saw some ingredients that you know you could join up and there was a big aha moment tell us more about that sure so uh speed cell itself was a service which would buy and sell um segment goods from consumers it was a bit like those websites where you can go and sell your old mobile phone but it was for a much wider variety of items and the origin of it actually was that i was burgled uh, one day and on my insurance I was sent a replacement computer that I didn't actually want or need and but the, the insurers weren't, weren't going to send me cash so they, they sent me this computer and then to turn it into cash I was going to sell it on eBay which was a faff so it seemed to me that uh, 
it was an obvious case for why people would prefer to be able to sell items to a known buyer, albeit at a reduced price, rather than go through the faff of selling on eBay. So I created this business, Speedtel. I mean, at this point, I had been waiting for years uh, as a corporate employee to get out for an opportunity to leave and, and be an entrepreneur. I still, I would say, spent maybe, I can't actually remember, probably six to 12 months prior to quitting my then job at RBS to go and do this business, uh, Speedtel, just in the planning phase. But yeah, we launched this business, ran it for three, three and a half years, I think it was. The point at which the business failed, and it did fail, was the point when um, actually everything worked. Uh, so we could, we had built proprietary technology which could establish the price of almost anything in your house, books, games, CDs, DVDs, electronics, sports gear, DIY gear, baby gear, jewelry, you know, you name it. And we did that using eBay and Amazon data in the main. And we would send a van to your home to pick it up. We would pay you roughly half the what we anticipated the resale value was, and then we'd resell it. Problem with that business, it was actually a relatively low margin business. Not quite as thin margin as classic retail, but even so, if we were paying £100 for a basket of goods, at the end of that, we might end up with a gross margin after all of our uh, variable costs like handling and the dispatch and the uh, collection. And also there's a weird tax, uh, uh, a form of VAT on secondhand goods. Altogether, we'd end up with a gross margin of maybe 10 to 15 pounds. And that's tough because with that sort of money, you can't afford to do much advertising, to to, to pay to do customer acquisition. So the, the unit economics were very difficult. And... We had got the business to the point where it was all up and working and we had happy customers and that was all good. And we just lined up our first major partnership, uh, distribution partnership with a big retailer, which was, um, I think now over a decade later, I can probably say that it was Argos and we were going to do Argos's online trade-in program for them. But to get through the pilot with Argos, we needed to raise a lot of money and, uh, probably quite rightly, to be honest, none of the big investors in London would touch it with you know substantial sums uh, because it was a very operationally intensive business with low margins, and uh, that's not usually what investors like. So having run that for three and a half years, uh, we definitely got to the end of the journey. I had actually executed on pretty much everything that was ever in the plan and take it to the point where if we were ever going to be able to raise big money, we would have been able to, but at that point, we just just couldn't nobody would, would give us the money i think in speed to life i forget the exact number but i think i pitched something like 200 times and maybe raised money from five or six business angels um so it certainly wasn't for want of effort but uh, um yeah, that that company was never going to raise the finance that it needed to get um substantial and to be honest even if we had raised the finance i'm not convinced now in retrospect that it ever would have been a great business one of the things that we often hear from from pioneers is that there's a certain drive. It's an entrepreneurial drive, and it's shared by a much broader, broader group of entrepreneurs. There's something about putting something in the world, backing yourself, backing the concept. You, you'd had four or five years of working in an environment where I guess you, you learned more about what good businesses look like. When you went into Speed Cell, were you kind of brimming with confidence? Did you have a sense of what you were taking on at you, know, you knew or you had at your heart this was a good business or did you just want to make it real you wanted to be in this digital world this was the vehicle that was going to take you there how, how how sort of pre-engineered was it 
And therefore, how surprised were you when it worked out, you know, the way it did? So interestingly, you, you said brimming with confidence. It's worth noting at the time, I, of course, was a banker in my late 20s, and nobody brims with confidence more than a male banker in his late 20s. So, um, <laughs> yes, I did have lots of confidence that, that this idea would work. And in retrospect, I knew just about nothing, none of the skills that uh, you need to build a retail e-commerce business did I have at that, those times. So at that time, so the concept of gross margin was one that I had essentially never encountered in the years that I'd been working in banking. Uh, it's actually not a concept that um, people in financial services typically use, uh, and it is the most important concept in in retail. And uh, most things fall out of that. There's also a particular ratio of numbers which entrepreneurs in almost all sectors need to know. But strangely, it's very rarely talked about. I'm not even sure if it's talked about on uh, MBA courses, although I've never done one to find out. So almost all businesses live or die on the ratio of uh, the lifetime gross margin that you make from one customer versus the cost of acquiring that customer. And really, you want that ratio to be at least three to one. Now, if I'd known that in advance of starting out, then I would never have started out to retail because uh, if you're only making 10 to 15 pounds on a customer, there's no way you're going to acquire that customer for uh, less than five pounds. So it's a rubbish business. And uh, I wish I'd, I'd known that. And it's informed everything I've, I've done since. So to answer your question, yes, there was um, more of a, well, certainly there was uh, some misplaced confidence, but also there was just a sense that I had to go and do it. I tend to advise people thinking about being an entrepreneur that if entrepreneurship is a choice, then you probably shouldn't do it. Most of us who end up being entrepreneurs really cannot bear to do anything else for any period of time. And I certainly found by that point that turning up in a corporate office as a regular employee for month after month, year after year was not something I was happy doing and uh, so in that sense I really felt like I had very little choice but to try my hand at entrepreneurship. So your time with Speedcell kind of you, you got to the point where it became evident to you that for all the pitching and for the funding that you and you did raise some funding but for, for all of the plan that you rolled out this wasn't going to work. Give me a sense of that kind of that moment, but also how you dealt with the consequences of that moment. Because you had people working with you. You'd made promises to investors. How, how did you deal with that? Something that often surprises people who haven't been through the process of winding down a business, uh, but won't surprise people who have been through it, is that actually at the point that you decide to wind down, the sensation is, if anything, a positive one rather than a negative one. The likelihood is, because businesses almost never fail overnight, they usually fail over the course of you know, months or even years, that up to that point you would have spent months or years with that unpleasant feeling of this isn't working, this isn't working, this isn't working, I'm going to have to sack everyone, you know, we're chewing our money, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And that's a horrible feeling. At the point that you decide that you're going to have to wind everything down and uh, sack your colleagues, which is never nice, but at that point, the other thought you've got in your mind is, I'm free, and everyone involved with this enterprise is going to be able, is going to be freed up to go and do better things. The first part of that is quite significant because in the failure scenario, which 
is, as I mentioned, likely to have gone on for months or years. You will have been chewing yourself up. You will have been working 60 in our days with no holidays. You will have been broke, you know, barely able to pay your own costs, et cetera, et cetera. And, and it's a pretty unpleasant way to live for a long period of time. And um, one thing I did know is that, uh, much as I had no great appetite for doing it, that if I came out of living this entrepreneur's lifestyle, which is pretty miserable when it's tough, in fact, it's often pretty miserable even when it's good, uh, then I would, uh, as I saw it, get my life back. And, uh, you know, I could go back to eating in nice restaurants and using taxis and all those other luxuries that corporate employees take for granted. So for me personally, it was not so unpleasant to uh, shut things down, particularly because I did know that actually I had executed quite well on speed cell. It wasn't a great idea, but the... Um, the execution would be fine, something I could be proud of, and that my investors were not angry with me. They could see that uh, that I, I'd done everything possible with, with their money. And uh, with regard to the staff, I made sure that they were all lined up with other jobs um, and they were looked after in one way or another as best I could. And um, and that worked out. So, you know, nobody suffered too much because of the uh, the, the failure of, of speed sale, apart from the fact that our investors lost money, which is something I felt terrible about, but it is what it is. I think there is something, I've got plenty of fail benches of my own. And um, I think one of the interesting things is just how intimate the experience is. You know, you're, the, the money you've raised, you feel real responsibility for, regardless of the wealth and circumstance of your backers, because you've made a promise. And you, you feel the same to the tribe of people that you're sharing your mission with, because, you know, they're backing you and they're getting on board with the story that you've told. So I, I, I share those emotions. I know what it's like to kind of feel the relief. But also, you know, I think it's admirable to be able to bring it in to land in a way which made it as positive as it could possibly be for all the people who've been involved. Is there a, is there a single thing you'd have done differently when you think about that early business? I just wouldn't have launched it. <laughs> of that. I, I'm actually, I'm extremely happy with, with the execution in that business. I mean, what, one of the things that I observe now, now I have an organization which um, does lots of projects at the same time, which are entrepreneurial, and we are relatively good at it. And so we can do things quickly and cheaply to an extent that new entrepreneurs can't. So it is definitely the case that an experiment in speed cell, which you know, it took us three and a half years before we shut the thing down. If I'd been an experienced entrepreneur, I probably could have knocked out in in sort of twelve months. Uh, and a, and a very experienced entrepreneur wouldn't go there in the first place because it was a bad idea. So there are, if you like, little technical things, but there is no sort of glaring error where I say, you know, how could I have uh, been so stupid? Other than that, um, as I say, the, the the fundamental unit economics of the business were rubbish. <laughs> Excellent. Okay, so um, uh, after Speed Cell, you kind of did some day job stuff uh, for a while, I think, and you know you you had the skills, the chops, the network to to apply your strategy skills to various different people. But but you also got pulled kind of back into that political sphere. I, you may never have left it, but you know, give me a sense of how kind of politics and uh, uh, reading into the SME sort of space and challenge came together. I think this was 2011, 2012, something like that. Yes. So I had remained a member of the Labour Party ever since being a teenager, ever since the Blair years. And in, I think it was 2012, um, uh, I had a bit more time on my hands. I'd stopped doing speed cell. Um, you know, I, I was 
no longer borderline bankrupt, which I was when I came out of Speedtail, uh, and looking for interesting things to do. And I decided, really just for fun, that I would bother going to a uh, late party conference in 2012, which I hadn't done in for the previous decade because late party conference isn't actually a brilliant place to present yourself if you have a job in banking, which at least for some of that time I did. So, uh, but anyway, I went and... By coincidence, that year, Ed Miliband was giving what I suspect may have been just about the only great leader speech he ever gave. Uh, but he did give one really good one in 2012. So I was inspired and I thought I would help out. And I got in touch with uh, some people I know who worked in Chukramuna's team as the shadow business secretary, saying, I'm available if I can help. And they said that they needed uh, a book on business policy they had uh, line well they'd actually already had for something like a year a task force going led by a fellow who sadly had died and uh, they had a new leader new big name on it uh, but being the big name he wasn't going to be the one who did all the work writing it so um uh, could i help and i was very happy to do it i spent several months uh, doing it we aggregated together like a hundred different ideas i think uh, into a, a suite of policy recommendations and it was pretty well received at the time. It had the positive effect of making Ed Miliband's Labour Party look like they were business-friendly. Whether or not Ed Miliband really was business-friendly, I think it's, it's, it's still up for debate. But um, but certainly at the time, the, 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 it achieved its, its political um, ambition. And it was an interesting piece of work to do, and also interesting to be exposed to the way that Westminster operates, albeit to a very small extent. Did it... Um... Did it give you a moment reflecting back on on the early original political aspirations that you had? Did you feel pulled more in that direction or had entrepreneurship kind of gripped you and that was very clearly the direction you were going to carry on going in? Yeah, it definitely didn't exert pull. I think potentially the opposite, actually. I'd done bits of bobs in, in, in and around politics in previous years. I'd been a candidate in a local election in 2005, I think it was, or maybe 2006. But I hadn't been close to Westminster and I had during those years worked in some big companies where professionals behave in a professional manner and I think the experience of many people who have done work in professional environments and then are exposed to what Westminster is like is quite normal to be quite disappointed that uh, little things like none of the meeting rooms in the Palace of Westminster have whiteboards uh, <laughs> Or, or you know, any any sort of technology, if you like, for collaboration, uh, seems you know, extraordinary to people who are used to operating in a uh, professional manner. And and there are other aspects of people's behaviours towards each other that are just strange. And unsurprisingly, you know, there is no more political environment to work in than politics. So for all those reasons, I came out of it thinking actually it was a pretty unappetising way to work. I had primarily made the decision not to go into politics earlier, though. I had done a master's in development finance in um, my, I think I was probably age 26, 27, 28, which I did on the side, uh, distance learning, which um, I'd done to help me decide whether to A, work in international development, which is what that was about, so World Bank, IMF, that sort of stuff, or um, my other options at the time were to go into politics or try and be an entrepreneur. 
And um, so it was actually the decision not to be a politician had been made in my late 20s rather than um, later on after exposure to Westminster. But definitely more exposure to Westminster made it easy to feel comfortable that that was the right decision. So while the, the politics kind of side of, of that initiative didn't didn't pull you back in, clearly there was something about immersing yourself in that in the SME challenge that that resonated with you, both having you know, been an SME but also having having operated in that that space and researched into that space. We fast forward a little bit to around twenty fourteen, maybe twenty fifteen. You know, this is the time when uh, you uh, brought Tide into the world. What is it that you saw that other people didn't. So it's worth noting that what Tide does, which is basically just not sucking at business banking, is not a spectacularly insightful thing. And um, I actually suspect there probably were quite a lot of people who realized that something like this uh, could be useful. And there's evidence for that because although Tide was the first company of its type in the world, um, there were a load of other companies that emerged within two years of of, of Tide's launch uh, with very, very similar ideas. And I think that can only have been because what we're doing in many ways is actually quite obvious. So the the thing that had changed prior to me, me if you like, having the idea or the plan for Tide was that uh, there was an American business, you remember, which I think still exists, called Simple.com, which was the very first significant neobank. And... Lots of people for many years have talked about how surely there should be you know, a new generation of magnificent internet banking entities. Uh, and indeed, um, some people listening to this podcast will remember in the UK, uh, as far back as I think 2000, there was um, uh, there, were, there were a couple of attempts at that from the co-op bank and there one Smile and then there was another one called Intelligent Finance. So the idea in that sense was quite old. But the thing that stymied real entrepreneurs was that everyone's, th- assumed you would need such enormous amounts of capital to start a bank that you would never be able to do it because uh, you'd never be able to write, write, uh, raise the capital. Now, this American business, Simple.com, had come up with a clever model where they were just a software layer and a brand on top of a third-party business that did the regulated banking activity. And they launched a consumer-facing banking service uh, that way. And so in 2014, um, and in fact, in previous years as well, because I'd been aware of Simple for a little while, it seemed to me that that breakthrough idea that Simple.com had had was extensible to the UK. And that uh, whereas consumer banking was quite tough to make the margins work in, which is you know, a, a concern that I've had ever since the speed sell experience, the margins need to be healthy that in business banking margins could be uh, very healthy and also that we could provide something that was really substantially better than what the big banks were offering by integrating lots and lots of other fintech services into one place to save small businesses time. So that was the the origin for it. I don't think the uh, the, the thought was necessarily so remarkable or unique. I suspect other people probably were having similar thoughts at similar times. But the other point, is that there were very few people who were credible to create a business like that because to do it, you needed to, A, worked in banking, and B, 
know what it's like to run a small business and to be the customer of these services. And the truth is, there's just not very many people who um, have those attributes, which I think is the real reason why there weren't six other entrepreneurs pitching the same idea at the same time that I was. Yeah, and look, I can, yeah, I'm a guy who designs businesses for a living. And so it looked entirely obvious to me. But the reality is, entrepreneurship is a deployment issue. And uh, having no idea is worthless and has no value unless you can deploy it. And that's crucially, I think, what you've done magnificently with with Tide. When you when you started out, how clear was the big end goal? I, I get that there was an open goal because the state of business banking, particularly small business banking, was, and I have to say, still is awful. But you know, how how big was your ambition? How clear was your North Star? How did you did you know you were going to get a hundred thousand customers? Were you aiming for a million? I, I've got no sense. How big was that? was that a challenge you were taking on? Yeah. So actually Tide has never pivoted and has done basically exactly what I anticipated, uh, although it's taken longer. <laughs> and, you know, there's always little little things about it that one would like to be uh, different aspects of the service that uh, are not quite as fully developed at this point as I would like them to be, et cetera, et cetera. But, the, but fundamentally Tide is precisely what I had in mind in the early days because the idea is, is as you say, pretty obvious. Uh, interestingly, some of my early investors had different views um, in the early days. So we ended up deciding that the point of the business was definitely and only to save small businesses time and money. We decided that after we'd already been in the market for a year, and it was it came out of a, a very deep, fulsome brand development process which took nine months and cost a lot of money but was worth every penny and, and has been fantastically valuable for the business and that was the process by which the question was solved or answered finally that that was what the company existed to do prior to that there had always been questions from uh, investors in particular saying should this really be about cash flow management or should this be about alternative forms of lending or should this be about forex or should it be about something else rather than being about saving SMEs um, time and money and it is pleasing to me to note that where we've ended up works that we have built a, um, a good business doing roughly what I always hoped that we would do. And you mentioned the customer numbers. Actually, now I think we've got about a quarter of a million members, as we call them, uh, using Tide, which is which is a good outcome. I think I, I've no doubt I had projections in the past that said that we would get to this level and above, which indeed I'm, I'm confident we will uh, have a, even more clients in the UK than that or members. But uh, equally, you always have in the back of your head that if we do this, that's incredible and amazing and therefore we probably won't get there so it, it does still constitute a sort of pleasant surprise to me that we actually got to the place that we projected we would get to and of course now we're beginning to uh, internationalize as well we haven't announced um, our next country yet but uh, that's happening as well and it's nice to see the vision going global well venezuela needs you so um go for it the um uh, it, for what it's worth in kind of prepping for our, our conversation today i mentioned to a few people that we were going to be speaking and um and quite a few of them are tied customers and um all seem to be delighted to be tied members uh so you know good for you it's always nice to kind of hear reflected back your purpose and your ambition being played back as i think the experience that, that your members are having was that you know from the outside 
there are lots of interviews with you, George. You know, you can tell the story. You had a vision. You had a purpose. You rolled it out. You raised funding. You executed. And now you sit on the board and do other things as well. Happy days. Looks very easy, very straightforward, very linear. I suspect it wasn't necessarily quite so linear. Was there ever, was there a moment when you thought it was all going to fall to pieces? Could you bring to life some of these these kind of existential challenges you faced on that journey? Yeah, sure. Worth noting that, to be honest, Tide was an easier journey than lots of easy entrepreneurial journeys. It was certainly a lot easier than um, than Speed Cell. And I always used to say to my team in in Tide um, that they needed to understand they're often less professionally experienced than me that you know we just had a good quarter but we should assume that the next one would be a disaster and they should be ready for that and it turned out we never really had the disaster quarter we had moments where um we weren't growing as much as i would have liked because because of poor board decisions but in the main it was a pretty straightforward ride in tide but even so we did have uh, uh <laughs> yeah there was one particular moment that i always remember as the um the, the nearly fatal moment in in tide so it happened at the end of 2015 at christmas so what had happened was this we had in mid 2015 raised the very first bit of angel funding just 150,000 pounds and uh to get it i had um, recruited a sort of CTO who was uh, working part-time. He had a day job as well. Um, he was knocking out the platform. And subsequently, there'd been a disagreement with him over the terms under which he would join the business full-time. And without going into the details, uh, we weren't able to agree terms. And so he ran off with the code. Now, he had in the past signed something and said that, um, you know, if he didn't join the company, we would still own the code. Uh, and I think we were going to pay him in arrears for that code. But he didn't adhere to that agreement. And he did just run off with the code, which meant that I'd raised £150,000 and I'd spent most of it. And I had no product to show for it. And then was able to find another um, CTO and we started sort of rebuilding but we were running very short on cash and it got to Christmas at the end of 2015 and it would have been a pretty stressful time. I'd, I'd got off, gone off on holiday to uh, Asia to get some sun to sort of cheer myself up and actually I think on Christmas Day or the day before uh, one of our early investors sent me a fairly assertive email saying that as we were running out of money and we hadn't managed to raise any additional money at that point I would have to go uh, without salary and this, the other CTO I'd hired would have to go to half salary. And these are not big salaries, these are early startup salaries for three months to extend runway while we raised other, other cash. And um, I just wasn't in a place financially where I could easily do that. Uh, the value of it was that because he sent this to me at Christmas and he knew that I was on holiday in Asia, that... He therefore probably wasn't going to expect a reply from me for uh, a few days, or at least he could get away with it. And so it's at that point that I pulled the ripcord and uh, did the thing I really didn't want to do, which was to email some personal friends of mine who I never wanted to raise money from because um, 
I had lost my friend's money in speed sell and I hated doing that. But I was desperate. I had no other options. So I emailed my friends thinking that if I got a response out of them, I would get the response before I'd have to uh, reply to this other early investor. So anyway, I got lucky and my two friends both agreed to put in £25,000 each. And as a result, they made a tremendous investment. I think they're at least on 50x now. And uh, having brought in that money, I could then uh, tell the investor that she, I'd, I'd address the problem and therefore I wasn't going to take the, the pay cut um, uh, for the foreseeable. And actually, we then raised a whole load of other money in the, in the following few weeks. It was all fine. But uh, that was definitely a you know succession of tricky moments where it would have been easy to throw in the towel when we lost our code base and where we um, were running out of cash. But um, fortunately, didn't do that and uh, the rest is history. Well, look, that's great. And and how, if you think think kind of where you are now, if I understand it, around 2018, business had scaled significantly. You stay on the board, but you brought in someone else to, to kind of run the, the next part of the scaling journey. If you kind of reflect on the experiences you had in the organization and, and think about what it changed in you as an individual, I'm really interested in either the toll that these experiences took on you or how they changed your character or beliefs or or outlook? Or are you the exact same person that you were as you started with Tide in 2014, 2015? I'm a very similar person to the person that I started with Tide, actually, because but I, I was still in my sort of mid to late 30s um, at that point. I had years of experience as an entrepreneur in one way or the other. I had learned a lot of the stuff already. The thing that's changed is that although I had learned the stuff, I didn't know that I'd learned the stuff. And I hadn't at that point had a win. And that affected uh, the dynamics of some of my relationships with uh, other stakeholders in the company, be it senior staff or um, investors. I think if you are not arrogant or a psychopath, then it would be normal for um, those other stakeholders to be able to detect that you know that you're just winging it. <laughs> and uh, and that diminishes your authority a little bit. I think the thing that has changed now is that people who work with me know that I know what I'm doing, whereas uh, five years ago I knew that I was uncertain about whether or not I knew <laughs> what I was doing. And from that increased confidence comes uh, increased authority to get stuff done in the way that one wishes. I think that's really interesting. I was going to ask you what you'd learned about yourself, but but it sounds like it is that confidence to be self-determined in the choices that you now can, can roll out in the world. Maybe if we think less about what you've learned about yourself, but what have you learned about leadership? You, you went on a journey, you created a big brand, lots of customers and a big team looking to you as the leader. Um, what did you learn about that part of the role? I think doing leadership is work. And it can be a real pain in the ass. And the best way to avoid having to do that that work is to have set the, the right culture in the first place and hired the right people. So I'll talk about that in a second. I think um, once you have the right culture and the right people in place, then it ought to be the case that there are fewer crunch moments where the leader has to do leadership, so to speak. So on culture, 
uh, one thing we did in Tide between employee number one and employee number two was I wrote down the behaviors that I wanted to see from the organization. And I think initially there were 13. Uh, then there were, in a later iteration, were eight. I believe now there's three, but with lots of different sort of subcategories. It was very, very useful, very powerful. It meant that everyone who joined the organization knew the parameters of their behavior that were acceptable. And I've, I've done it again for the organization I run now. And I would recommend it to everyone. You cannot do that too early. Then on hiring the right people, difficult to overstate the importance of being, I guess, ruthless about uh, only ever hiring people you think are fantastic. Uh, my experience was actually harder to ensure that level of quality at the senior levels than it was at the junior levels. Senior levels, there's often not very many candidates in the entire market, and so you're choosing between people who uh, are qualified but you are not certain have all the attributes you're looking for. The junior levels actually is a, a much bigger supply of candidates uh, and so I think you can be even more exacting there. So you had great commercial success with Tide and you're still involved, you sit on the board, but beyond commercial success, you've been chasing other kinds of breakthroughs too. CanDo is a social incubator uh, that you've set up. Tell us more about kind of the vision behind the business and what you're trying to do. CanDo is a team which essentially exists to scratch my itches. It's, um, there are lots of problems in the world which it seems to me shouldn't be there and which feel fixable. And I've assembled a small team to prove out that those fixable problems can indeed be fixed with solutions that we develop. So what that means we're doing is we're applying entrepreneurial method to a very wide range of, of concerns. Uh, yeah, we started out with our first one was getting food to people who are self-isolating under COVID-19. We've launched a service which creates uh, or make, makes it easy to use um, uh, PA services in, in your consumer lifestyle, a very cheap price point, which we initially planned for use by pensioners, but actually it turns out it could be used by anyone and i recommend it it's on adminbusters.com if you're interested and it's 19 pounds a month plus 50 pence a minute for a pa in the uk forgive the advertisement um we are about to launch uh, a new interface for mobile phones for older people which is dramatically easier to use than any smartphone you would ever have, have used which your family members can manage for you on the internet and there'll be other services that we um we launch uh, over time. We also do research work. So where there's a space where we think uh, something could be done, but we don't know quite what, um, we'll do a little research. So uh, we have published a fairly lengthy research report into the global philanthropy sector because I was interested in what it would take to encourage more uh, philanthropy. Now, in the long term, it may be that this capability, uh, which we call can do, can be uh, used by other people to uh, explore and prove out the ideas that they're interested in. But for now, it is, uh, it's my team and, and my ideas. And the intention is that as and when any of these ideas are proven out, they can then be spun out as their own venture with their own management team. But in order to get to that point, we just need a very small team working very fast, prototyping stuff, uh, seeing what works in the market and what doesn't. 
Look, I think that's great, and I can see why it's a source of great pride, especially given that you've got a chance uh, as a team to kind of really prove uh, the model during uh, the craziness of 2020 uh, with the stuff you did around you know, Pop to the Shop. So uh, good on you for doing that. What, As you look in the wider world, kind of what pioneer initiatives or individuals are turning your head? What are you most excited about beyond your sort of direct influence? It is incredibly cliche to say it, but it, I, I still think it's um, valid to point out that much as the rest of us as entrepreneurs are you know, busy doing things in the internet, in 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 on planet Earth, there's still Elon Musk who's busy <laughs> sending rockets to Mars, doing you know real real hard science with hardware, connecting machines to people's brains and uh, creating self-driving cars and you know, changing how we uh, do energy consumption in the world. That is a, a, an entirely different league of entrepreneurship to what the rest of us are up to. Uh, I think it is actually quite useful for everyone else to be humbled by seeing uh, that man. And of course, there are you know a couple of others doing some pretty impressive stuff as well at a scale which means that the rest of us really cannot get too too pleased with our achievements because it's it's we're, we're, there's nobody's really in in anything like the same league as old elon musk yeah he is an audacious if slightly wonky fellow uh, i think every conversation i have with a pioneer ends up pointing to him and what he's what he's up to but george i've really enjoyed chatting today i'm, I'm thrilled that i got to speak to you again especially at a time when you've designed, launched and scaled something that's been a massive success and that's had a real impact on the lives of hundreds of thousands of people and and on their businesses. If people want to find out more about you or your various and and, uh, many interests, how can they follow you and keep an eye on what you're up to? So uh, if you go to georgebeavis.com, there's a set of links to my various social network profiles. And uh, on Twitter, I'm at georgebeavis, where I am noisy and opinionated so you might follow me for a brief period and then decide that there's too much noise going on and decide to mute me and that's fine but uh those are the 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 key places to find me that's fantastic george we've tended to meet when uh, you're about to spool up a new venture i do hope that history repeats itself and i can't wait to see what comes next thank you so much for joining me today on pioneers wanted thanks phil it's been fun I think you would have been able to tell that I had a really good time hanging out with George on this recording. Like so many pioneers, he's got a big worldview and a passion to build back better. To find out more about Tide, go to tide.co or follow them at Tide Business on Twitter. I'd also recommend you check out tidecharity.org.uk to see how they're helping out small businesses in these difficult times. You can follow CanDo on Twitter at Team Can Do, and follow George personally at George Beavis. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please do like, subscribe, and review us. Pioneers Wanted is produced by Hunch, the strategic innovation practice and the home of pioneer leadership. Check us out at brillianthunch.com or follow me at PJA Clark. <laughs>